All right, let's take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. It's a chapter we started last week. It's Amos's third message. He's delivering probably in Bethel. He is speaking to powerful people, both politically and religiously. So, uh, kings, princes, priests, uh, the, these are, these, this would be uh, his audience. And the, the message has been pretty clear thus far. Uh, they, they, have, they have reached the point of no return, so to speak. Uh, though God extended opportunity after opportunity for them to repent and return to Him, they have not taken advantage of that invitation. And so now judgment is coming. And this is Amos' primary message. Judgment is coming. They need to prepare to meet the Lord. Prepare to meet thy God could be the, the, if you're looking for one verse or phrase out of Amos, and that was in chapter 4 that kind of synthesizes the whole thing, that'd be it. Prepare to meet your God. And in this case, Israel needs to prepare to meet God in the fullness of His judgment. And so we get into this third uh, message, which is chapter 5, and Amos is leading the people in a lament. Begins by saying, Hear this word which I take up against you, a lamentation, O house of Israel. And so this is what we started last week, looking at this lament that Amos leads the, you know, on behalf of God's people. And the title that, that we've given this, that I gave it last week and looking at it again tonight, what, what I find really instructive about a passage like this I say instructive, it's really pretty intimidating on the one hand, and it's really disheartening on the other. Because it, it, is, it is Amos leading Israel in a lament, not over something that has happened yet. It's one of the rare examples of this, by the way. Almost every other lament that's in the Bible, and there are a number of them, as we said last week, there's a whole book named Lamentations, and Psalms would be the other place where you'll find a lot of them. As far as I know, all of them are laments over something that's already taken place. Some kind of an event. So, so, some kind of deep, grief-evoking reality. But not Amos 5. God's judgment has not yet come. But Amos is calling on them. The prophetic message is for them to go ahead and begin the process now. Go ahead and start lamenting. Lamenting over what's to come. And so we noted this is described as a prophetic lament. Lamenting ahead of time, something that's not yet happened, but it's going to. You know, this whole topic, I think, is a helpful one. If you think about the, the nature of a lament, there are really two basic kinds. On the one hand, there is a lament over circumstances that happen that are outside of your control. So, so there, there could be any number of things that would come our way we couldn't do anything about. So, for example, all of us lamented Hurricane Florence, right? Yes, that is lament-inducing. Is there anything we could have done to stop the hurricane? 
The answer is no. I, that's not a trick question. All right, no, no, there's, there's, there's nothing we could have done, uh, no matter what the environmentalist might say. All right, I mean, it was coming, all right? No matter what, the hurricane was coming. Uh, this was a done deal. We could think of other natural disasters along these lines, floods, tornadoes, earthquakes, droughts. I, I think we could also look at something like a pandemic. I mean, though, though we could debate a lot of the the, the ways in which this has been handled and, you know, all of those elements still at the end of the day, was, was that out of our control? Well, well, sure. I mean, you and I as individuals couldn't have stopped this from happening, right? It was lamentable and has created no small amount of lament in us over two years. It's hard to believe, right? Two years. You think about the war in Ukraine, uh, other similar kinds of hostilities and places where, where just really brutal things are happening to people. It's, it's lamentable, right? We, we weep, we grieve, we cry over what we see humanity facing. Now, this kind of lament, this lament over things that happen in this world over which we have no control, I mean, that, that's, that's, it's appropriate to lament them because these do remind us we live in a fallen world. It is a sin-stained world. It is still under the curse of sin and death. But then there's a second kind of lament, and I, I've, I've termed this, I haven't found anybody who's used this term, all right? So you're getting brand new stuff, all right? We are coining a phrase, a double lament, something that is doubly lamentable. Well, what would that be? It would be those things that happen to us that evoke a lament because, because they are grief-inducing, we, we face consequences that create deep sorrow, that there are ramifications that just, again, uh, grieve us and maybe others. But it could have been avoided. I mean, we, we could all testify, right, to the circumstances we faced in life that resulted in a lamentable set of circumstances, but looking back, we realize, ah, uh, it's kind of my fault. I mean, you, you think of any number of circumstances people might face, criminal behavior and people facing the consequences for it, uh, the, the, the consequences of a, of, of a, of a cheating spouse. Uh, you, might, you might think of somebody just making foolish, ungodly, immoral decisions and facing these grief-inducing kinds of circumstances, and you realize the lament is double. It's doubly lamentable. It's lamentable that we face the pain caused by sin, but it's even more lamentable if we, pay, if we face lament over sin that could have been avoided. Consequences we didn't have to face, that had we just made better choices, had we been wiser, had we taken God up on His promises availed ourselves of resources given to us to stay in fellowship with Him. Things could have turned out differently. This is, this is Amos chapter 5. This is where Israel is. Now, I'm confident as Amos is proclaiming this message to the powers that be, that I have no doubt they're not listening, all right? And in fact, they, they probably aren't taking kindly at all to Amos's message to them or God's message through Amos to them, but they find themselves in a doubly lamentable set of circumstances. The reason why I think this lament is such a profound one is because of that. It does lament what's going to be the, the pain of sin and the consequences of sin, but it's their own. 
It doesn't have to be this way. At least it didn't. They could have avoided the judgment to come. And so, and again, just to, just to reiterate this, I believe the whole thing from verses 1 to 17 is, is properly identified as a lament, even though in some of your translations, you might have verses 1 through 3 marked off by a heading, and then verse 4 has a separate heading. In fact, the New King James says it like this, verses 1 through 3 is labeled as a lament for Israel, verse 4 is labeled as a call to repentance, and then verse 16 in the New King James is titled the Day of the Lord. However, this is one of those cases where, you know, you've got a translator who has broken up the text for you. Very often that's helpful. Sometimes it's not. And here, here's the case, and, and this is the case, I think, in this chapter. I think verses 1 through 3, especially 2 and 3, Amos is calling on the people to lament, and that same theme is picked up again in verses 16 and 17. I think these verses, 2 and 3, 16 and 17, are bookends. So verses 1 through 17 is the text. So if in, in your reading I, all right, if you can, just kind of black out the titles the, 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 the headings that have been given, I, I would contend that this is, this is all one passage and it is all a lament. Meaning that the content of it all, even verses 4, then, 4 through 15, are intended to be a part of it. So the points that we've been going through are, are just that, points of the lament. Why is it that the nation of Israel, even though things have not happened, why is it they should be lamenting? What should they be lamenting? What's the problem here? And so I think we, we have a really interesting way this is, this is written uh, as a way to emphasize this. So we, we start, again, we started this last week, and I think there are really three reasons why Amos calls them to lament. And um, I didn't get my outline in the, you know, in the, the overhead, all right? So you're going to have to listen for the blank to fill in. Are you ready? All right, so num- number one from last week that we already got to, the first reason for a lament here, it's a lament over their refusal of God's invitation. So after kind of working through the details of verses 2 and 3, We have verse 4, for thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Now, I would agree with the translators, by the way, who say that is a call to repentance. It is. Seek God. That language of seeking God contains in it all that would be included of turn from your sin and pursue the living God in His Word Uh, with God's people in prayer and worship, all those things that that are involved in seeking the Lord. We're not talking about something mystical, all right? We're not talking about going to the mountaintop and fasting for 40 days. To seek the Lord is to avail yourself of the resources God's given you to know Him and be in fellowship with Him. So that means His Word, being under the teaching of His Word, being in fellowship with God's people, being in prayer, these things, being in worship with God's people, these these are the things that help you seek the Lord. So what he's saying is, this this was available to you. Seek the Lord and live. Don't don't go to Gilgal. Don't go to Beersheba. Don't go to Bethel. 
Meaning, don't go to these sources of false worship, these places where you are engaging in idolatry. He called them to repentance, but I would contend the call to repentance is a way to say, this is all you had to do to get out of this. But you didn't. You didn't. Go back and read chapter 4. You'll see this is what happened. God does this judgment, but they did not return. He did this judgment, but they did not return. He did this judgment, but they did not return. All of this is designed, I think, to drive this point home. They should lament the fact God gave them an easy out. I'm not saying it's necessarily easy to repent, but I just mean the concept's really simple. Admit, Admit your sin, confess it, Repent of it, seek the Lord, turn away from the sin you are engaging in. It's all they had to do. But they weren't going to do this. Instead, verse 7 indicates to us that they, they, they were a people who turn justice to wormwood, lay righteousness to rest in the earth. All right, so, so again, the first one, and if they're blank, you're filling in, it's the word invitation, a lament over their refusal of God's invitation. All right, number two. The second feature of the lament is a lament over their rejection of God's authority. So the blank to fill in, I think, is the word authority, the last word in the line. You could also use the word greatness. You could use the word supremacy. You could use the word sovereignty. I mean, all these words are, you know, though they're not all perfect synonyms with one another, they're all getting to the same essence that one of the issues then facing the nation of Israel is their rejection of God's proper place in their lives. This, by the way, is the fundamental reason why they didn't avail themselves of His invitation. Because that they do not rightly worship the Lord. And so, Amos then draws this out. Look at verses 8 and 9. He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea. He pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is His name. He rains ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. You know, this is something we've already seen peppered throughout Amos, where Amos turns his attention to what is, what is called theology proper. Theology proper is always a way to refer to the doctrine of God. It is speaking of, you know, kind of these most foundational and essential but often weightiest realities of who God is. And in this case, Amos turns straight to this greatness and authority, power, glory, supremacy of God. And and he also does something he's done before, and you find a lot of the biblical authors doing this that to emphasize God's glory and greatness, they very often take us to His power over creation. It's like the ultimate sign, right, That, 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 that God is the one true God. And so comparing him to his creation is, is one of the Bible, the biblical author's favorite ways of doing this. And Amos is, is no different here. So first, he, he turns to the stars. I mean, he says he, he made the Pleiades and Orion. Now, th- this is a direct attack on the surrounding nations of Israel that Israel had allowed them to influence them to various forms of astrology. 
This is a kind of a refrain that you see in some other places in the Bible. The way in which, at times in Israel's history, part of her idolatry included worshiping the stars, thinking that the stars gave some kind of revelation or instruction. Aren't you glad nobody does that today? Oh, wait, they're still pagans who still think silly things, like the arrangement of the stars in the sky means something about your personality. You know, when you put it like that, that really does sound silly, right? That where the stars are and which stars you were born under somehow influences your destiny, who you are. You're, you know, so, so we, we, we read the, you know, the, well, I, I'm a Sagittarius, all right? And uh, I, I don't know, I like long walks on the beach. I mean, I don't know what all those mean, but that's kind of how it is, right? This language of, well, these, this, is, this is who you are, you're this, and so you shouldn't marry this or whatever. It is, it is so foolish to hear this kind of language. This is exactly what he's going after. I mean, it's, it's veiled. He doesn't come right out and attack it. He doesn't really need to. God made the stars, They're not saying anything to you other than God is the God who made the stars. That's what they're saying to you. Every single one of them, every twinkle, twinkle little star is saying God's in charge. If you're looking for a message, that's what it is. (laughs) They should only ever point us to God's greater glory, to God's supremacy, They're certainly not a source of worship, nor are they a source of revelation beyond telling us something about the Creator. But this is what Israel does. This is what people do. Romans 1 lays this out. Instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. But but he goes on, verse 8, he turns the shadow of death into mourning. That's really a poetic way of describing the the, the, the night turning into day and makes the day dark as night, that phrasing all put together, it's just a way of reminding us, not only did He create the stars, He's the one that has determined the movement of these things that bring us night and day. They're not in charge of it. They're not operating of their own free will. God set them into place and assured their movements. Now, does that mean that God is literally, you know, if God somehow is late and doesn't follow daylight savings time, that the whole universe is going to get messed up? Well, no. And apparently Congress is now finally onto something they agree on, right? I don't know if you've seen this, but the Senate voted unanimously. Isn't that amazing? When was the last time that ever happened to get rid of the daylight savings time? Anyway, that's a separate thing, all right? Um, That's what happens on Wednesday nights. Sometimes I get off track, but let's get back on. You know, because he, he, he is saying, so, so this God is, is not in the stars. He's not in the movement of these, of these heavenly bodies. He set them in place. He's in charge of them. Yes, I know God created these scientific elements. So sun, you know, earth rotating, rotating around the sun, moon rotating around the earth, you know, all of these things happening. But they only happen because God not only created it, but ensures the universe's ongoing operation. This is what he's getting at. So again, speaking to his ultimate creative power. 
Well, then he goes on. He calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. It's a way of describing then his authority over the the bodies of water, over the oceans. He called them forth. He set their limits. And if he uses them for the purpose of a flood, which, which, you know, to to be sure, you read that phrase in verse 8, and pours them out on the face of the earth. If, If I'm in Israel and I'm hearing a prophet use that phrase, what does my mind think of? The flood. This should be really intimidating. This is how God works. God set all the oceans in their boundaries. He said, here's where you stop. Job tells us this. He said, you stop here, you go no further until he calls them out for his purposes. And he can. So this this is a threat, right? That that God, this is how God works in judgment. And so the Lord is his name. And then he kind of gives us keeping the metaphor of creation, but changes it. He reigns ruin upon the strong so that fury comes upon the fortress. So so the takeaway from this is, for those who would stand against the Lord, this God who controls the movement of the stars, day turning into night and night turning into day, the movement of the waters of the ocean itself, who can call the waters to do as He will, He's then going, that same God in charge of the water is going to rain down ruin on even the mightiest of fortresses. Think... Think of the mightiest of nations with the mightiest of weapons, with the mightiest of forces. They might as well be an ant in the face of the judgment of God. There is no stopping it. And so Amos' words here, it does have that force of being the power, the authority, the greatness, just the sheer grandeur and majesty of God. It's surely something that we probably don't meditate on like we should. And and I can understand that, by the way. I mean, we find ourselves enduring situations, you know, where, where, you know, whether, whether there there are issues that, that hurt the heart and, you know, we, and we face life circumstances, trials, tribulations, griefs, and sorrows. And so we can really rest heavily on God's love God's grace, God's mercy, and these are all fine and good things, and we've, we've preached and taught on all of these things, but, but that does need to be balanced. We, we, we do a disservice then to our own theology when we only rest on the God of grace, mercy, and love. The reason why this grace, mercy, and love is so profound is because it is the same God who is so utterly holy that for you to even look on the slightest amount of his glory would take your life. This God, this God who flung the stars in the sky, who decided of his own free will and power, this is where the oceans stop, and this is how high the mountains are going to go. And this God who's going to bring judgment upon those who would defy him. So we do well to remember this. And this, again, is why I think it's still a lament. This is the God they've offended. Not the God that you hear described in a, you know, a lot, like especially in our American culture that kind of describes God. He kind of sounds like a big, you know, bearded grandfather in the sky. It's just a really horrible image to have of the Lord. No offense to the grandfathers, all right? I'm not taking a shot at grandfathers, all right? You understand that. I think a lot of grandfathers, okay? I just mean 
God's better than that. Again, I love grandfathers. I'm just telling you, he's better than that. And so to think of him in those terms is really problematic to even try and conceive of him in that way. So this is a lament because this is the God that they have offended. All right, let's go on to number three. A lament over their rebellion against God's law. So the final statement here, the word to fill in the blank would be law. So Amos does something that he's already done before. He's bringing out indictments once again, drawing attention to their sin. And once again, there's going to be specific reference given to the issue of justice. So verse 10 begins by saying, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate and they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Now, we recognize the reference to a gate We've talked about this before. To be in the gate is to be in the place of power. The gate would have been where civil discourse happened. It was the place where um, government took place. So, So to say that they hate the one who rebukes in the gate and the one who speaks uprightly, what he's saying is part of the problem in Israel is that those who would dare come into the place of power and influence and speak the truth are receiving nothing but hatred and condemnation. Those, those who would dare to utter the, the, the Word of God, in, in essence, those who would speak uh, uprightly. So the people hate the ones who rebukes in the gate. I, I really find verse 10 to be one of those, you know, those verses that you could just cut it right. I'm not telling you cut up your Bible, but you know what I mean, right? Metaphorically speaking, cut that thing out and you could paste it anywhere uh, that you see something that shows Washington, D.C., right? Is that not the case? That in the places of power and influence, what do they often do to those who would speak the truth of God's Word? They don't take kindly to it, do they? Do you see the people who love the Bible being those who are promoted the fastest into positions of power and influence in our nation's highest levels of leadership? Do we see that happening? Nope. Instead, those who are in the gate, if they speak truth, and if they speak words of rebuke against the system, they speak uprightly, they receive hatred. So, So this already, this is what Amos is saying, you're not willing to listen to the truth. And then he says, verse 11, Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. So again, we have have this issue of their oppression. They tread down the poor. And that reference there that says you take grain taxes from him, so the, the identification of these, of these individuals as poor would indicate, one, they're a, a definitely not landowners, right? And if there's any kind of farming that they're doing, they're doing it as some kind of slave or servant labor, right? In other words, do the poor have any grain that they can give in taxes? Of course not. It's an unjust tax. This is why this is real injustice, all right? 
This is actual injustice because what the people in power and positions of affluence are doing is that they are taking those who don't, who can't even pay this tax. I mean, this is not something they would even be required to do. And they are taking out of them this kind of tax. So they are abusing their position of, of power and they are targeting those who can do nothing for themselves in order to make themselves wealthier. This is what we've said all along in the book of Amos. This is what's being identified as injustice. Not the fact, I just want to emphasize this again, not the fact that there are poor people. Now, I'm not saying we should want poverty. But we should be clear here, especially in the way the conversation gets convoluted today. The, the, the issue is not the presence of the poor. There will be poverty among us. The, the, the issue is, are they being intentionally targeted and taken advantage of so that those who already have can gain more? All right? So this is the problem in Israel. They're being targeted. They're they're intentionally going after them. And so Amos says, you might have built houses hewn of stone. In other words, you've got um, places of of wealth and extravagance and luxury, and maybe you've planted pleasant vineyards, but you're not going to drink from them. You're not going to live in these houses. You're not going to drink the wine from these vines. Nope, this is is not going to happen. This, by the way, is a direct statement taken from Deuteronomy chapter 28. You can write this down, verses 30 and 39. Here's what Moses warns the people if they engage in sinful behavior that he's told them not to. It says this, You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. So again, Moses warned them about this centuries ago. You engage in this kind of sin... If you then acquire for yourself on the backs of others, intentionally targeting them because they can do nothing for themselves, you're not going to get to enjoy this. And so then he goes on to say in verse 12, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just, taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. Now, there's a couple of ways that phrase is often taken. So again, as as Amos kind of gives a catalog of the sins of the people, um, language we've already kind of talked about, he's he's really just repeating something, uh, elements we've already heard in in terms of the manifold transgressions, their mighty sins, so the afflicting of the just, the taking of bribes, their, their lack of justice for the poor. So when he says, so the prudent will keep silent, there's different ways that can be taken. Some suggest what Amos is saying here, so you'd be wise to keep your mouth shut. And, and, and though there could be other ways of, uh, of taking that, so some will say, so wise people will just try and lay low. Some have said that. The wise person will just try and lay low. If you're wise, these are evil times. Uh, it, this is a done deal. Don't, you know, don't, don't get involved. Just keep your mouth shut and because judgment's coming. I I kind of like the language that would suggest this is Amos saying the prudent person, the wise person, in light of the indictment leveled against them, will remain silent before God. 
The judgment is coming. Again, I think this is a lament. This is part of the lament. So judgment is coming. You have violated God's law. You disobeyed what He has said. And so this is what's going to come upon you. So sit down and be quiet. Now here's why I find this interesting. That the prudent would stay silent. If you and I have some kind of conflict... We recognize there's going to be two sides to the story, right? And, and in all my ministry, and I've, I've been engaged in conflict resolution, mediation, in any number of ways between people. Sometimes I was the problem, all right? I know that sounds amazing, like, what? No way. But yeah, every now and then, all right? Like once in a blue moon. So it's happened. So inevitably, there's going to be two sides to a story, right? We tend to think our side's 100% and they're 100% wrong, but we recognize that's not, that's not how this thing works. So they'll have their say, I'll have my say, let's see if we can then work this out in the middle. So that, that's how we would resolve conflict, that's not how God resolves conflict. There's no your side of the story. You don't have a side of the story. God doesn't need to be made aware of things going on. In other words, in God's court, there, there's no taking the stand in your own defense. God is not interested in hearing your retort or reply. This is what I think he's getting at. Because of all that he said, all of the indictments brought against them, I think now the statement is, so now case closed, all right? No, no more needs to be said. I don't need to hear from defense. I don't need to hear the other side of the story. When it comes to God's indictments against us, there is no other side. There's only God's. Amos, I think, really drives this home. And so, so then, it, then notice what he goes on to say. He offers once again the same invitation, though a little different. Verse 14, seek good and not evil. Though he says seek good and he doesn't say seek God, that's really what he's still getting at. Seek God and that which is good and not evil that you may live, so that the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Once again, he is offering a sincere invitation. But we know, because this is a prophetic lament, they're not going to do it. But he's once again laying out, it's real simple. It's nothing deep, nothing profound. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It's what God's looking for. Turn from the sin. Turn from the disobedience. Now that, that, will, that will then get you to where you need to be in, in order to enjoy God's restoration. So again, what is going on in Israel? Well, one, the reason they lament, okay, so they, they've, they've ignored, rejected God's invitation. That they are in, in, in rebellion against God's authority and in rebellion against God's law. So Amos returns to lament, verses 16 and 17. Therefore the Lord God of hosts and the Lord says this, There shall be wailing in all streets, and they shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmer to mourning and skillful lamenters to wailing. In all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through you, says the Lord. So again, I just want to emphasize that language just to show the 
the, the symmetry of sorts, the way he begins with a lament and ends, and notice the definitiveness of this ending. You will lament. You will wail. You will grieve. Go ahead and round up the professional lamenters because you're going to need them. This is going to happen. In fact, let the farmers know, let the vineyards know. That's a way of saying this is going to be across the board. This is going to be nationwide across the whole country. So go ahead and ramp this thing up because the pain and the grief is coming. Why is the pain and grief coming? And this is what I think also is really instructive. The pain and grief is coming not because a foreign invader is going to come. God says, I will pass through you. That should have sent a chill down their spines, right? Because does that sound like anything else to anybody? When you hear that phrase, God will pass through you. Do you think of any other story in the Old Testament? Yeah, the Exodus, right? Where God sends the death angel to pass through. And if you did not have, if you had the blood on the door, then he passed over. But if you didn't, then he passed through. So he's saying the the Lord, the Lord is going to pass through you. This is not an encouraging statement. This is not a comforting statement. This is terrifying. God in his judgment is going to show up. So lament and weep and wail. So, this opening lament here. Now, he's going to go on, and there's going to be some more in this message, quite a bit more, actually. In fact, some suggest that the rest of the book is still this third message. But as we kind of close this up tonight, just just a couple of thoughts as we think about this lament. Uh, just a couple of takeaways. This isn't on your notes, but just, just thoughts that I think might be a helpful way to, to, to take away from th- this particular text First, I think a passage like this reminds us that that lamenting is a good process. Lamenting is a part of life. We live in a culture. This is going to sound weird to say because you may think everybody thinks this. We live in a culture that really hates grief. Now, that sounds weird to say, right? Nobody wants to go through grief, right? But our response very often to grief is first, hide it, mask it, stuff it down, or get through it as quick as possible. Sometimes that's not always helpful. There are lamentable things that happen. There are lamentable things that happen that are not our fault, and grief is an appropriate response. There's nothing wrong with it. The the curse of sin and death is reigning. And that's grievous. It hurts. It hurts to see it. See it in big terms, see it in our own lives, whether it's that you know, we're lamenting something that's not of our own doing or even lamenting something of our doing. At the end of the day, what is the cause? Well, it's this reality of sin that the fullness of the curse has not been lifted. It's been defeated, but it's not been lifted. So, so lamenting is good because it reminds us there are still more promises to the gospel yet to be fulfilled. So, church, if you find yourself in something creating grief, then grieve, because there are things that are lamentable. But then I think a second takeaway would be, we should be mindful of the ways in which we might be headed down a lamentable road, 
but we don't have to be. I mean, we will face plenty of grief. Why create self-created grief? Right? Be mindful of the ways in which maybe we're not. Are we availing ourselves of all the resources God's given to us so that we can confess our sin, come clean about our sin, be restored back to God? Are we availing ourselves of that which would keep us from lamenting that which is unnecessary? Not every lament is because, well, it's just the way things are. Sometimes it could have been avoided. So, we think about what happened in Israel. Let's learn a lesson from them. Let's not learn it the hard way, right? Let's learn it from their hard way. I'd rather learn a lesson from your hard way than have to go through the hard way myself, all right? I mean, really, I think that seems wise to me. That doesn't always work. Sometimes I have to do it myself too. But I'd much rather learn your lesson than my own. If, if I can learn from your grief, how good is that? If I can learn from the grief of others, how good is that? If they've made unwise, ungodly decisions. All right, next week we'll jump back in. Amos chapter 5, continue looking at, in fact, we'll get into a part in Amos chapter 5 that, that, is, that has been radically abused in modern evangelicalism. Uh, and we're going to get, there's a part of Amos 5 that, that was a famous part of Martin Luther King's speech. And so we'll, we'll get into into the essence of it, all right? Uh, because it is, um, it, 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 uh, it might be controversial, okay? All right, so if that doesn't pique your interest, I don't know what else does. All right, we'll do that next week. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for the gathering of your people, a privilege to be able to come together in your name and with brothers and sisters in Christ, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. And we continue to ask that you, by your spirit, would grant us wisdom that we might apply it well. We, we do realize there are lamentable things in this world, and we do grieve over the realities of sin. We also realize some of that is because of our own choices and unwise decisions. But Father, we pray that you would help lead us down a path that, that avoids that, that deals seriously and right away with sin, that we might then live faithfully before you. I thank you for these who've come out tonight. Willingness to be a part of this time of prayer together. I pray they would know your hand upon them. Grant them wisdom for the days to come as they fulfill the roles you have assigned to them that you might be glorified by your people. Gather us back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.